Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. Jace, Elliot, good to be back talking with you, man. We were just hanging out last week. That's right. Yeah, we had a pretty good day. Yeah. All uh, kind of built around of a bunch of incredible people. You know, you had, uh, um, of course, Doug Duran, who uh, is a mutual friend of ours and a uh, great name and uh, really example in the conservation space, especially as conservation pertains to hunting. And um, we did the first ever sharing the land uh, work day in the great state of Iowa. And, uh, we both got to be in on that and, um, got to have some stuff filmed. Uh, so people will be able to see that later. Um, I think they're talking March when that might be coming out. Uh, but that was all, uh, through my work, uh, Hoxie native seeds, um, did that partnership with Doug and sharing the land. And, uh, um, we we had all these great conversations though, and and Jace and Doug really hit it off. You guys talked for quite a bit. Um, I, I think Doug was happy to be able to uh, have the ear of a state whitetail biologist for a little while, and uh, you know, Doug, that's really where um, that you know sharing the land has become become a big thing, and it's ever growing. But even before that, of course, he's you know known through his presence in Meat Eaters media channels. Um, but through that, through that exposure, people learned about how passionate Doug is about um, fighting against the CWD uh, problem that's going on in Southwest Wisconsin, in many parts of Wisconsin, but especially there in, in Southwest Wisconsin. And, um, so I imagine you guys had some good conversations about that. I, I got to hear some of that. Um, we'll talk CWD later. It, it's, it's gotta be talked about at least once a year on this podcast It's an important issue. If you love hunting deer, you need to care about it. And, um, uh, chances are, if you love hunting deer, you have a strong opinion about it one way or the other. Uh, so we'll, we'll get it. We'll, we'll kick that powder keg a little bit. Um, speaking of powder kegs, uh, this is totally unrelated, but I just thought of it. I thought you guys might find some interest in it. I botched a perfect opportunity to get this like really interesting footage tonight. Um, after work, I was filling up with gas at, at Casey's and I saw this like, uh, right there by the, so you know how by the gas pumps this time of year they have all kinds of firewood for people going camping and stuff they can oh yeah you know, buy a cord of firewood or something like that and well probably not a cord that's like a big that's like a a cord of wood is like a that's a that's a lot of wood so like a little bundle a little bundle of firewood but they have them all stacked up probably the whole stack would be a cord um, and uh, on the ground was a cigarette they could tell was like you know ten percent smoked. And, oh. and I just started thinking, you know, like, huh, they, that person threw their cigarette down. Now it was, it was out. So I don't know. They, I didn't look like it was stomped, but it was out, but it was laying next to a bundle of firewood, which was laying next to a, uh, gas pump. That stuff is dry. <laughs> that stuff is like bone dry. Too. Yeah, I know. And it was right yeah. next to the gas pumps. You know, it's just like, yeah. it wasn't well thought. But anyways, I took oh, a picture man. of the cigarette 
by the wood pile, but then I didn't think, you know, I should have like done a video, like pan from cigarette, wood pile, gas pump, you know, it's like one of those things that you can't believe what you're seeing. But anyway, you might have needed needed to take a detour to a different gas station. If that went differently. I might've been headed somewhere else if that, if that that went like it did, but, uh, or went like it could have, but, uh, no. So we could kick the, we could, we could set off the gas pump here when we talk about, uh, CWD a little bit, but we'll get there towards the end of the conversation. But in talking with Doug, uh, Doug is, is such a passionate guy and I love how he constantly looks at the other side of the coin. And uh, he's, he's, he's an against the current kind of guy. And I like that a lot about Doug and uh, Doug doesn't just do that though, just to get people to, to get people riled up. He does it because he cares about what he's talking about. And um, I want to be careful here that I don't put too many words into his mouth. Um, But uh, one of the things that he brought up to me, and I kind of wonder if he, you and him, I don't know if he did or not. You can you can let me know if he did or something if you want. You don't have to. But um, he brought up to me that he uh, either had talked to, it wasn't you, it was, it was some other state uh, wildlife biologist in, in another state somewhere who mentioned that it it can be hard in that position where you feel the pressure to manage the the wildlife resource the game you know the game species so to speak it can be it can be it can you can feel torn where you're having to manage for hunting opportunities more than you're managing for the overall good of the wildlife hmm. and and specifically he mentioned by not just focusing on what we call the game species, but even managing for those non-game or non-target species um, that you know are are uh, you know part of that whole the whole picture of an ecosystem. Is that a real thing? Like, is that something that that people in in you know your shoes are having to kind of weigh out all the time? So. When you're talking about my shoes, um, you know, my official title is the state deer biologist. So I'm, you know, paid to think about deer um, more than yeah, anything that's else. True. That's certainly true. I feel sorry for you. No. No. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a tough job, man. Yeah. I do um, that on the regular it, basis, too. <laughs> um, it, it, is, it is funny to put it that way. But um, that's to say that we definitely do put a lot of emphasis on game species management. But and not necessarily at the detriment of the ecosystem in general, the, the food web, so to speak. I think that uh, now I will also elaborate and say that I'm part of the wildlife research section and there's many different programs within that section in Iowa. So I run the deer program. Uh, you've met Todd Bogenschutz who runs yep. the Upland program, uh, which is Upland to say Upland game species primarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they're, there's a forest wildlife program that deals with, again, game species like squirrels and turkeys. Uh, and then, you know, a waterfowl program. But besides our, our game programs, we do have a non-gamer diversity uh, team, which consists of multiple individuals at the wildlife or the, excuse me, the biologist and technician level. 
uh, the coordinator position. And, and really, they're, they're tasked with, you know, thinking about and studying those species that are outside of the bounds of the game programs. Uh, now, that's the research section. The, the management section, uh, which are, you know, the unit biologists and their technicians, uh, which they're actually doing the, you know, boots on the ground habitat management. Mm. I, I think that rather than managing certain properties for certain species, they tend to manage those properties for a certain land cover type, if that makes sense, for a certain yeah, landscape sure. quality. Now, there's different suites of species that tend to do better in those different land cover types. But, uh, you know, if you're managing, let's say, uh, upland prairies, it's easy to say, yeah, this is a pheasant property and that's true. But um, can't you honestly know better than me how many different uh, species benefit from native prairies? Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and as a consequence of what some would consider pheasant management. Now, uh, you know, you can look at the same with deer. Some of our more woodland, um, you know, some of our WMAs with with more forest cover that, that people would be more drawn to for deer hunting uh, are, let's say they're managed for the oak hickory uh, forests that we had, that the canopy is, you know, managed so that there's uh, abundant understory for forage mm. for deer. Now that also has a rippling effect for other species as well. So I guess I'm taking a roundabout way of saying that uh, every time there's a management a habitat management plan written, uh, there is a holistic focus on first deciding what sort of landscape we're managing for and what the objective is, how to get it there, and then what species benefit uh, from that management, which extends far beyond game species. So, you know, th then again, there are certain things like, let's say, the agricultural leases that we have on our WMAs, the corn and soybeans that you might find. Yeah, those are primarily going to benefit game species, uh, mm. perhaps more than some non-game species. But, you know, I, I would make the argument that our game species, you know, having uh, well-managed and, and abundant game species really throttles the management of of all wildlife in Iowa, uh, just because when you're talking about a species like deer, that's, you know, that's the cash cow for the wildlife bureau really. And, and for all of our, you know, habitat management, um, that's what generates by and large the most revenue from license sales. Um, and it's also how, uh, you know, we are able to manage that resource through our hunters. So that's not to say that we don't, probably pay special attention to those game species, but I think that there's a good, a good cause for doing so. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that's a great answer. And, um, I guess there's, there's two ways I feel here. Um, way number one, I feel thankful for, uh, our, our state game or our state wildlife. I'll just say it that way. Our state wildlife management teams. Um, like you mentioned, I, I know Todd, Todd does an excellent job and, and, um, uh, another part of the unique situation that Iowa has is we are um, a, a what's the right term here? Maybe habitat deprived, habitat limited 
very much so degraded state yeah. as far as habitat Alternate. goes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just going by just surface area alone, you know, yes. uh, there's, there's very little habitat. And, and the fact that we have the hunting opportunities that we do, despite of that, you know, part of that's a testament to the adaptability of our main, our main game species here, which is yes. the, the white tailed deer. But, um, it's also a testament to, you know, good management from our state. So I think we have a little bit of a unique situation, not that other states are totally clueless or whatever, but from, you know, the observations and I've hunted in a handful of different states and I've, I've, uh, you know, definitely paid attention to it. I've done quite a bit of traveling. I think I've been to, you know, uh, near 40 of our states. So it's, it's, uh, you know, something that I see and I feel like Iowa is really, you know, sets the tone for everyone else, you know, kind of like, Hey, get it. And I'm not just saying that because Jace is here. I've said that for years. You can go back on, on previous episodes and you will hear me state that. And, um, uh, another friend of mine, uh, which I don't know if you've met him yet, Jace, I'd love to introduce you guys sometime, but skip Sly of, uh, Iowa whitetail, very, very passionate guy. And uh, we actually, on my work podcast, um, the Prairie Farm podcast, to all the, the listeners on the First Gen Hunter right now, um, go and listen to that interview with Skip because we really go through why Iowa is, you know, we joke and we call ourselves the whitetail state, um, but it's true. And Skip goes right down the list. And, um, and just explains we have all these things and, and really what does it come down to at the end of the day, it comes down to how we manage the herd as a state. And, um, and so that helps ease my fears for Iowa. But I think Doug's Doug's point is, is a valid point And one mm-hmm. that, um, you know, it's easy to just blame game, you know, state agencies is just easy to easy to do that. But it's really kind of pressure from us as hunters too. You know, what are we, what are we wanting? Are we wanting better ecosystems, and then of course better hunting that flows out of having a better ecosystem, or do we want to get the cart before the horse? And when we look at a degraded landscape and degraded habitat, uh, the number one reason how we got to that stamp to that point is because we constantly wanted the cart before the horse, and and so many different ways. So if, if all you want is, well, I just want, all I care about is that my state gives me better deer hunting, then you'll have better deer hunting for a while. But that system, that ecosystem, if that's all you're allowing your state agency to do, make their decisions based off of, is going to be more fragile. And then when you have a significant disturbance, you know, we're kind of seeing, you know, and people might be like, well, what would that be? You know, EHD can be one, uh, CWD can definitely be one. Well, look at what happened out West this winter, you know, <clears throat> Caleb, you talked about some of the things you were seeing on some different YouTube channels. Can you just kind of right. describe kind of what was going on out West? No, the, the winter kill. Yeah. Is that yep. what you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, um, well, those that follow along with that is the, the winter it's different because of the, I guess the habitat or the, the terrain, right. But it kind of, it's, it makes it a little more difficult for a state like Iowa to have a significant event like that. But, 
basically that you know the the deer can only drop so much elevation in elk and but the snow was just falling them down so the snow line just got so low elevation wise and it just kept coming that deer ran out of food they ran out of yeah. you know thankfully i mean we, we've got a lot of food and cover and the deer can travel a little bit here um in iowa yep. maybe not as maybe not enough cover it's kind of what we're talking about <laughs> but uh well uh, but but i mean like yeah. they're in you know that's a great caleb did a nice job explaining that when you have a big and who predicted that you know nobody predicted that no no but one. you know a big disturbance like that if your state isn't well managed that hurts 10 times as bad you know coming out of it and you, right. years down the road so uh you know I, I definitely get where doug's coming from and and i you know i think it's important that that our states do it like Iowa does where we try to, we try to address all, you know, one of the coolest positions I heard while last time I, so I went up to the field station, which is an awesome place. Um, don't go there because you're going to disturb uh, Jace from getting his work done. But we, <laughs> no, I think anyone can go there, but, but, uh, but we went there to interview Todd and, um, uh, <clears throat> there was a biologist on staff who's like in charge of the, uh, um, like, what what is it the rare like the rare species or something like that you know so if somebody gets a trail camera picture of say like a fisher or something like that they send it to this you know what i'm talking about jace i i don't know who that would have been um it could have been somebody in the diversity program uh okay maybe that's what it was yeah but yeah todd was kind of telling us a little bit about a little bit about that and Man, that would be a cool job to have. <laughs> That'd be a really cool job. But and and hopefully, you know, we have to expand, you know, because we're getting some habitat back. Hopefully we have to expand that office a little bit and maybe get a uh, a large uh ungulate um biologist, you know, to help with manage our uh, our small up and coming uh free roaming bison and elk herds. <laughs> <laughs> that can be reestablished on the prairies of Iowa, but hey, now you're now you're stepping on my toes here, Ken. Because <laughs> I, if but, we get if we get elk, that'll that'll fall under my umbrella. Um, oh but boy. I don't know that I'll ever see that day either. Yeah, so. I know it. I know it. Yeah. That hey, that's a voting issue, people. We all got to be comfortable with uh, hitting an elk every now and then with a the car. You know, <laughs> what do the kids say? It'll buff. But yeah, it'll buff. Yeah, maybe not. Buff out. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, no, it's great. It's great to know that our our uh, department's doing what it does. Uh, you've kind of had some controversy here lately in your department. You've had to make a few Facebook posts and uh, yes. you know uh, talking about a new requirement for all of us uh, deer hunters coming up in 2023: the main beam measurement requirement. Uh, can you yeah, tell us right. a little bit about what what that's about? Sure. So I'll get right into what it is first, which is uh, that that hunters in Iowa that successfully harvest and antler deer are now going to see one additional question being asked, uh, which is the main beam length of each antler. Uh, now, the fashion that question is being asked isn't just what, how long is it? You know, we're not really asking people to measure down to the quarter inch or anything like that mm-hmm. and report that number. Uh, but instead, they're going to be asked whether it was above or below 14 inches on each side. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason that we're asking that question, uh, which, you know, we don't take lightly adding any more hassle to the, um, albeit pretty simple harvest reporting process. Very simple. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It took um, me like 10 seconds. Last right, year. Right. 
Yeah. No, I think we we do have one of the most efficient uh, harvest reporting systems that I've I've encountered personally yeah. uh, in Iowa. But no, we did make it uh, just a bit longer by adding this, and it wasn't without reason. Um, I'll back up a bit, and it was about maybe a year ago uh, that that I got my hands on a, a data set that came from Iowa State University, and there was a master's student by the name of Dan Adams who uh, coordinated a research project where uh, over a thousand bucks across the state of Iowa, either hunter harvest or roadkill bucks were sampled for antler measurements. Uh, and they also had a tooth pulled, uh, which was then sent to a lab uh, to analyze age, uh, a process known as cementum annuli aging. Oh, which they, is, they go to Matson's out there. In, uh, Mat- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. I've had Matson's on this podcast before. Oh, I, very cool. I now have my teeth. Well, they're sitting in jaw matrix right now. I gotta extract <laughs> those teeth yet, but yeah, yeah, that's, that's cool. really cool. It's it's definitely the most uh, the most accurate aging mm-hmm. system that we have for white-tailed deer, especially beyond the two and a half year old age range. Uh, mm-hmm. Before that, you can use tooth replacement. Uh, however, after that, once they have all their adult teeth, you have to rely on tooth wear. Which there's a lot of stuff you can learn about how to do that, but when it really comes down to it, every deer is different and there's no absolute. So I tend to, you can nerd out about it certainly. And you can definitely get efficient enough to get ballpark estimates of age. Uh, But I want to emphasize that when we took these, when we used this age data, it did come from uh, looking at cementum annuli in the teeth. So anyway, now, now here we've got this data set with antler measurements and known age of like a thousand bucks across the state. And using that data, uh, we were able to isolate a threshold of antler length uh, or one antler measurement, which big surprise is a 14 inch main beam, just so happens to separate yearlings from two and a half plus year old bucks in Iowa Hmm. with about a 90 to 95% certainty. So what that means is that just depending on what side of that threshold the deer is on, you can be, you know, 90% 90% certain uh, of that deer's age down to yearling or two and a half plus. Now it'd be great if wow. we were able to, you know, it'd, it'd be great if we were able to get higher resolution, uh, you know, age just from antler measurements. But as you can imagine, I was just thrilled to even find that one antler measurement was able to do that. Uh, I was highly skeptical that we'd find anything like that. I think that Iowa is uniquely situated for this sort of thing just because bucks in this state put on a lot of antler pretty early in life compared Mm -hmm. to other places. You know, you hunt in Wisconsin, central Wisconsin, where I'm from uh, and grew up hunting, you're going to see a lot more spikes that are yearlings than you will in Iowa. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of yearling bucks in Iowa that are throwing six or eight points uh, on their first rack. So (laughs) That's that's unique um, to this region of the country, and so I think that sets us up well uh, to be able to you know draw yeah, a line definitely. in the sand. So anyway, we're asking this of hunters because now we're going to be able to add age structure data into our population model, uh, which is really going to tighten things up. And uh, you know, it'll also just be interesting to look at where more mature deer are being shot in the state as well, and how that changes throughout time. Yeah. Well, people will probably refer to me as like a government uh, bootlicker here, but uh, 
I think it's great. <laughs> I'm I'm a former biology teacher, and data is is key to understanding most things. And any anytime we get more data, we find out more about the animal. And so everyone whining and crying exactly. about having to do one more thing. I think it's probably more along the lines that you're worried that you're just going to shoot those 13 inch main beams all the time. And, uh, you know, that, that might be more of the problem. I know well, like, it's only a problem if you make it a problem. That's uh, right. I'll tell you the first five <laughs> bucks that I shot in my life were all, uh, two pointers. So yeah, yep, there you I've, go. Got, I've got them all up next to each other on the wall. So are you talking like, like a fork or like the Alabama 11? <laughs> we're talking about a, yes, a central Wisconsin 11, if you will. There yeah, you go. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah, it's, so you know what? That's reason. great. Shoot those bucks. You know, if that's what you're, if yeah. you're just after meat, then that's what it is. But don't, but don't be, you know, self-conscious about it. Well, don't I, be upset I know about having to measure it. Devil's advocate here. So, cause I, I, I was talking to some, some, uh, some people about this rule after it came out at a golf outing and they were kind of, they were kind of groaning about it. And I was excited because I had read the, I didn't realize that you, the tooth, um, you know, that they sent the teeth in as well. I just read that it said, Hey, you know, based on this, I think it was, yeah, it was like 95% or whatever, like you had just said here, but they were, they were kind of griping about like, well, if the government knows more about deer, they're going to restrict it further. Um, but for me, I feel like, and I don't know what you would weigh in on this, but that the more that that the, that you guys know, the higher chance that more tags will come to be, right? Like or or something like to that effect. Like some counties, like doe tags or population management, those sorts of things. Where I know, like the county that Kent and I live in, significantly less tags than if you go thirty minutes south. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So here, here's what I can. I'll, I got two things to say about that. And. First of all, yes, more data is always better. Um, it might not universally result in more tags, but what it will result in is better management, mm -hmm. whether that's more or less right. tags. It's going to have a higher chance of that being the right management decision. Right. So we're going to be able to use the ratio of yearling to adult buck harvest as sort of an index of either availability of large bucks, or you could you know, also look at it as the availability of yearling bucks uh, or, you know, the, the recruitment success of the prior year, for instance, and there's different reasons why we would look at each of those. Uh, so, yeah, I will say that as a hunter in Iowa, uh, you should be excited about this because it, yeah. it will give us, you know, more tools in our toolbox to, to do our job. Um, now, I, of course, heard a lot of concern about antler point restrictions being the next um. step. Yeah. Now I, I and I track the logic. It makes sense why people would jump to that conclusion. Um, but I have, I can honestly say I've never had a serious conversation with any of our leadership about doing that. I don't mm. think that we have any interest in exploring that. Uh, and I personally would advocate against it very strongly in Iowa. Now there's other States that do antler point restrictions like Michigan. Uh, there's Missouri other States. Does. Missouri, yeah. Missouri, right, right. Now, there's places where it can result in a higher a higher turnover of yearling bucks getting into that two and a half year old range. However, from what I've seen and observed in Iowa, if we put an antler point restriction of let's say four points on each side, now hunters can only shoot let's just say eight pointers, seven pointers. You, you know, um, mm -hmm. what that would it, what I would be afraid 
would happen in Iowa is that there'd be more harvest focused on high quality yearlings that are already throwing four points. Mm, and, the only, and the only deer that it would save from the harvest are quote unquote, low quality yearlings that might only be throwing a fork yeah. over time. I think that that could have the effect of lower quality antler genetics yeah. and fitness overall fitness in our population. So that could work great in states where almost all yearlings are throwing, you know, spikes or forks. Sure. Mm -hmm. That's not the case in Iowa. I, I think it would have the opposite of intended effect. That makes sense. I like yeah, that. I, I love hearing that from my uh, state whitetail biologist. That's, that's, that's good to hear. That gives me, that gives me uh, I already had a lot of faith in Jace. That, that just yeah. made it even greater there. Yeah. Um, and like you know what? I think the, you know, it kind of goes back to Doug's, you know, question where I, when you start doing stuff like that, what are we managing for here? You know, mm -hmm. and, and especially with what Doug has talked about in his recent understanding of the role of those young bucks in spreading disease, especially mm -hmm. CWD, um, because they are having to do more searching for breeding right. opportunities. They are, they are moving to more, they're the super spreaders, right? So if they have CWD and if they're after to check every farm on the block to find a receptive doe that they can access, that they don't get chased off of by a bigger buck, well, guess who's dropping off the CWD at, on the neighbor's farm when he shows up, you know? And so, you know, that, that plays into that too. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, what you said there makes a ton of sense. And, again, I you're always going to have people that whine and chafe under change. And I understand some of that sentiment too, you know, um, uh, people talk about the slippery slope of, you know, you give, you give uh, quote unquote, you give the government an inch and they take a mile, you know, and th there's some truth to that. You know, I think the whole slippery slope fallacy is a fallacy in of itself because we do see, we do see that happen. But in this case, there's no danger here, and uh, there's there's not there's not a loss of opportunity. If anything, it's going to be resulting in an enrichment of opportunities. And so, um, I'm I'm all for it. Yeah, it's going to take some getting used to, and and that. But we already do it for turkeys, and that's right. Um, uh, yeah. I think it just makes sense to get to get that little bit more uh, data. And you know what? If I end up shooting a little dink, I'll have to own it and I'll got to put it on there. It's less than 14 inch uh, main beam, but, but uh, no, uh, it's, it's, um, you know, what's, what's cool about this too, is that, you know, we're all going to be talking about 14 inch main beams in Iowa now. And that knowledge is going to spread of being able to, yeah. you know, eyeball age a deer. There's a lot of hunters who don't understand that, uh, a yearling buck might throw a full rack uh, mm -hmm. because they see spikes and forks. They assume that all yearlings look like that. That's certainly not the case. I mean, five to 10% of yearlings have greater than 14 inch main beams, which is pretty insane. Uh, mm -hmm. There's, you know, where I was uh, sort of diving into whitetail deer biology uh, as a graduate student at Auburn University in Alabama, there's a lot of two or three year old bucks who aren't throwing 14, 15 inch main beams. So we are definitely lucky in Iowa. We have, uh, and, and I would point that all to the nutrition that's available here. Yeah. Sure. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a great way to, to look at it. And you know what else, you know, another reason I just, I thought of Caleb for why I'm glad we don't have antler point restrictions. Cause if you had to have four points on one side of the rack and I couldn't shoot my dream buck, yeah. I just have to <laughs> let him walk by. My dream buck is a big old three by three, Jace. I want, I want that. I want that big slick six. Oh man. Yeah. That shed hunter's page keeps posting that one that was like a 200 plus. Have you seen that? Was that it was a mainframe six pointer? It was it was in Oklahoma, I think. Oh no, you got to send that one. I've got to send it to you. It's it's ridiculous. You guys got to look it up. I think it was. I think it's in Oklahoma. It's it's a, it's it's got more than just three points, but it's a mainframe six pointer, and the mass on the thing is like oh man, it's like a it's like a pop can all the way out to the end. It's huge. (laughs) I'm here for it, man. Yeah, that's all. Well, Skip's brother Aaron Sly, he shot that giant set. I think that was last year, wasn't it? That giant seven. It was a mainframe six, but he had like that. He had that extra weird tine on there, and I think the spread on that deer was infinite. So. you know, I think it's just an infinity rack. You know, the That's antlers just funny. like went out of the side of his head, and uh, there's no spread to measure. But it wasn't I, think, I think you said it. I think it was a 25 inch spread, actually, or 27 inch wow. spread, something bonkers like that. It's like mule deer numbers. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it was it was wild. But no, I'm glad to hear all that, and and it's good to know that our state is. You know, we're trying to stay the whitetail state, and that takes good management. Oh, yeah. And that's why yep. we keep what we have. Absolutely. And, and, you know, to Doug's point, we are in our own best interest to manage whitetail deer as well as we can and put as many resources as we can into that program. And I'm perhaps a bit biased uh, in making that statement, but I, I think it's true because, I mean, there's a line of non-residents waiting to hunt our state, Oh yeah. uh, you know, and because we have the draw system, we're a little bit unique in that aspect. Yep. But I think it's pretty telling when people are willing to shell out money for preference points for half a decade mm-hmm. just to get a shot at shooting a buck here. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we do have something special. Yep. And let's keep it that way. We want it to stay that way. So uh, all good. All good stuff there for sure. All right. We're talking a lot about antlers here. So this is the next. This is where you get to put on your biologist cap for us, Jace. We got some some different, some different antler questions to run by you here. Mm. So... One that I've heard, and Caleb, I think we've talked about this too before. Caleb and I do yep. a lot of shed hunting together. We're we're antler obsessed. We love antlers, um, so we're always we're always it's talking super about fun. Them. I yeah. mean, there's so many things like I learned about. Was just this total tangent, but leaving like the pedicle, you oh, pick it yeah, up, it's yeah. picking out like testosterone levels. I don't know. Well, there's always more to learn. But yes. anyway, yeah, for sure. So one we hear about, I'd say fairly often is. Uh, drought years versus wet years and antler antler growth uh, drought years versus wet years is there any truth to that that you know during a dry year antler isn't going to be as you're especially going to know from being from the south where you're studying is i guess right (laughs) yeah probably uh yeah was that a mississippi state um theory I, I no, don't. I don't. I don't know if it came from that. I don't remember where sure. I heard it from sure. originally, but I've just heard guys like, say that. Like, I think I've heard it everywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would is have it, to. Is imagine, it real? I would have to imagine it, it. There probably is some truth to that, and because antler growth is so highly linked to nutrition mm-hmm. and water availability or droughts plays a pretty big role in what's available in terms of nutrients on the landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If if you're in a drought year and your forbs dry up and die 
there's a lot of nutrients that aren't being actualized and being, you know, put into antler mm-hmm. growth. Um, is that, I, are those nutrients just basically calcium and phosphorus? Is that yes, the main thing? Exactly. Those are, those are the two big ones for sure. Um, and we know that soils that have higher calcium and phosphorus result in plants that have higher calcium and phosphorus mm-hmm. that result in deer eating those plants and growing bigger antlers. So, um, you know, Iowa is kind of the prime example of that. We have very rich soils just due to, mm-hmm. you know, geographic history here, uh, mm-hmm. being situated between two massive river systems and uh, mm-hmm. all yeah. of the, the sediment deposit that happened over, you know, millennia have yeah. situated us very well in, in, in that aspect. So yeah. I would, I, I haven't read anything in particular about drought years and antler growth. Um, I would be surprised if someone hasn't explored that specific question, but I'm not aware of it myself. Uh, but I, I certainly think there's probably something there. Yeah. Well then, you know, so every, you know, I think every state has a drought map, so you could just, you know, if you're wondering which piece of public ground you, you're really wanting to be the year of the slammer and, uh, you want to, you want to go find that big two hundred, you just follow that drought map and uh, go hunt, <laughs> go hunt the, uh, the lowest, uh, the lowest concern drought counties for your uh, giant bucks then. But you know what I would, if you're looking at that map, you may also have it influence your shed hunting yeah. uh, from, from the perspective that areas that are experiencing higher droughts are probably putting more stress on the bucks. Right. In those oh, areas. That's a great earlier, tip. earlier antler drop. Uh, uh, dropping uh, yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. That's, all right, Caleb, we got a new wrinkle, man. I think we you got, should I think you should probably just remove that that segment right there from the podcast. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're gonna take that out. That's, <laughs> yeah. No, that's I'm that's also great. on the on this topic of just a, t- a rabbit trail here, water. I've heard on a wet enough year that deer can gather enough water on like leaf like gathered in leaves on plants mm, and such. Like they don't necessarily have to go to like a creek or like a yeah. pond. Is that that's true? That's true. Yeah, to that? it is. No, there's situations where where deer can get the majority uh, of their moisture water content from uh, forage. So that you guy that is always so, complaining that on a wet year that 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 buck just lives in that cornfield and he never has to yeah, leave. He's drinking the corn right that. off the stalks. They're <laughs> drinking water right out of the stalks. I was just I was just going to explain that. I was having a conversation uh, with my girlfriend last weekend and. Uh, we were putting some cameras out. Uh, she's going to hunt with me during early muzzleloader season. Nice. And I was, I was telling her, you know, I'm not expecting to see a ton of deer on this camera in particular until uh, the the deer have a reason to leave the cornfields just because, mm. I mean, that is certainly true. Mm-hmm. Their deer can spend a considerable amount of their life in those fields, not be under any sort of threat and have all the <laughs> nutrition that they need. Hey, I got a hot tip on that specific thing during early muzzleloader season. So that is my favorite season to hunt, early muzz. And I want to be careful about saying that because it's a limited, uh, it's a limited draw, I guess you could say, for yeah, uh, residents. All your secrets, Kent. We uh, already got shed secrets. The last, <laughs> that's right, the last 15 minutes of legal shooting light in the evening, that is when it happens. It goes from zero to 100 miles an hour in that time frame. And, uh, first of all, you need to be figuring out where are the deer leaving from to get to, um, 
uh, really, they really seem to like, you know, Forbes and grasses, uh, to browse on that time of year. Um, and, uh, what I have found is if you have a transition area between a cornfield and a bean field, when they come out in the evening, and this is my theory, because they know that their cover is getting better by the minute, you know, darkness is coming. They will tend to move out towards those soybeans and chew on those soybean leaves or at least browse in the grass, you know, waterways and stuff near the soybeans because they're more comfortable being out in the open as it gets darker. In the morning, it's the opposite. I have found almost every time those deer will, as they're loafing before they go back to bedding down for the day, um, they will stick close to that tall corn because they want that easy security cover to escape into if they see something they don't like and they know that they're becoming more and more vulnerable as the day gets brighter and they're more easy to be detected. And I mean, it's, it's, it's not 100%, but it's like, you know, what, what do you say? It's in that first standard deviation, you know, that 90, what is that? 95%, you know, yeah, yeah, 92. Yeah. It's, it's crazy how, how, uh, you know, accurate that 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 trend has been and i've seen and i've observed it a lot yeah so deer are pretty predictable that time of year which can be a, a good thing uh as long as you're able to capitalize on those crepuscular yep. minutes sometimes yes. that's what it comes down yes. to so if you're not where they're moving through you're not going to see deer that time of year yeah and you're not and you won't be able to get to them in time you literally won't no, be able, nope. the, that that short window of time will pass I once had it where I had a nice buck. I kind of wonder if it ended up being the buck that I just uh, tagged this last year, Caleb. Um, The year before, I had a really nice buck at like 40 yards in that last five minutes of legal light. I found in my scope, settled my, my reticle on his vitals, squeezed the trigger, and nothing happened because I forgot to cock the hammer. And because it was so low light, I mean, I still had like maybe one or two minutes of legal light left to get it done, but I could not find him in time in my scope, even though he was only, oh. you know, 40 to 50 yards um, because of that. So that illustrates Jason's point. If you, you got to be in the right spot and you got to make it all happen right then, right, you know, immediately. Yep. But. Yeah, I I love it when they're standing corn. Most people hate that, but man, when if you don't have a property that's got like big vast timber mm-hmm. on it, um that is your timber. That's your forest, that corn. Yep. And that will literally like on my home farm where I hunt during this time of year, there's probably 30 deer on this farm. And as long as the corn stays up, it stays that way. But mm-hmm. as soon as that corn comes down, it's five, you know. Yeah. And yep. and it stays that way until they're totally gone and go to their wintering grounds and and where they shed and hopefully I can get access to to go find them. <laughs> but but no, you I know what I, else is interesting about that time of year is it kind of coincides with acorn drops uh, for a right. lot of species. Mm. And so I was thinking sources, that yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you know food sources are kind of shifting by the day that time of year and it's there there's a lot of. Um, sort of scheduled deer movement like we're talking about in the mm-hmm. very early morning late evening but there's also kind of an element of you know you have to kind of get in their minds you know you 
walk into an area and, and take an inventory. Are there a lot of acorns where that uh, are there not? And in which case you probably should focus on ag foods, agricultural foods. And yeah. um, what I had a lot of success doing last year, and I say a lot of success, but I, I just had one morning hunt of my early muzzleloader season last year and um, was able to uh, connect on a, a pretty, pretty average two-year-old buck in Iowa, which I was very happy with. Um, mm-hmm. and, and was one of one of my biggest bucks I've shot in my life awesome. uh, at that point. So, Congrats. yeah, yeah, and it was sort of what you're talking about. I I knew that the deer, or at least suspected that they would be feeding in in the fields, and I set up a, basically a ridge that I assumed the deer would travel from the fields down the ridge and eventually make make their way to their bedding spot on you know the downwind side of the ridge, and mm-hmm. it, it just happened to work out pretty well and. Um, We'll we'll put that theory to the test in a and just just yeah. a few weeks, month yeah, and a half. I know it. I know it's coming. Yeah, up. yeah. You, your ideal situation is probably like a cornfield on one side, a bean field on this side. You're in mm-hmm. the timber that has white oaks in the middle. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly. right. That's right. Like, and like a nice go. a nice Find green that. like waterway. Yeah, waterway know, or like sear, strip of CRP <laughs> yep. or something. Yeah. yeah, in between. Yeah, that would be that would be the dream there you for fi- sure. You find that and you faced it, you found a unicorn and you, there you go hunting. <laughs> that's early, right. Early, hunted on that biggest cold front in October early months. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. If exactly. you don't shoot a buck then nothing makes sense. Right. That's right. That's right. No, it's a, I I really think it's the best season in Iowa. I love that we have it. I think it's unique that we have that opportunity there. And it's kind of an all or nothing deal, you know. That's your you you can uh if you hunt that season, I think no gun tags after that. Uh, yeah, all you can do until yeah. late Both muzzleloader, season. you can do an antlerless muzzleloader tag, mm-hmm. yep. um, or a management season tag, I suppose too. But, but um, yeah, so it's kind of you put it all on there, and literally you're hunting those those minutes, um, as opposed to you know different times of the year you're doing something. But you're also hunting like you're bow hunting too, which I really like. Right, the deer movement's probably much more natural than you'd find during the firearm seasons here. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. It's just a oh goodness, yeah, wonderful time <laughs> to be out in the woods. Yep. Dare, dare I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, exactly. So uh, another antler thing is, uh, you know, Caleb, I'm going to have you explain this. Which one are we going with here? The year four to year six oh, jump. Sure. So a lot of guys talk about you know, hunting mature bucks, which I, I'm on board with. Um, I think if you're in an area that's battling CWD really hard, then um, it probably makes more sense to be open-minded to taking your best opportunity you know, to, to just tag a buck. Mm-hmm. and kind of like what Doug has talked about. But here where we're at, um, CWD is definitely present in Iowa, and uh, we're going to talk about that you know, later in this conversation. But um, you know, I think we can still enjoy the good old days of trying to tag a mature buck and, and managing you know, for, for buck size on our properties that we hunt by doing a selective, hard, a selective harvest that – focuses on harvesting mature animals um four and a half years old is generally the cutoff would you guys agree for for someone saying they're hunting a mature buck now i will will hear guys say uh no 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 that's too young i'd say five and a half years and i've even heard some guys say six and a half years old is their cutoff 
Um, well, first of all, what do you think of that, Jace? You know, that's so deer dependent. Uh, there <laughs> are deer that make their peak when they're seven and a half years old, mm. even eight and a half. I mean, that's rare. Mm-hmm. If let's say if you drew a bell curve of when a deer is going to hit its maximum antler growth, probably five and a half, six and a half. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're yeah. going to be really close, probably at four and a half. Okay. We're, we're talking like you're not going to go from like a 180 to a 210. I mean, just probably to not, get but, something out there, right? Like you're going to go like 180 to 187. Like you're not yet like. Yeah. You know, but so I'll bring up this one buck uh, that. I was able to observe quite a bit in, in Alabama. So in, in Auburn University, there's a captive deer facility. It's about 400 acres. Now we know every single deer that's on that property, roughly about a hundred deer. Mm-hmm. And every year there's annual uh, deer darting efforts. So we go out and sit in tree stands like we're hunting, but we have a 22 <laughs> blank powered uh, tranquilizer gun. Oh, that that's gotta be a fun day of work. Yeah, I, I I wasn't complaining much in those days. <laughs> it's a fun way to spend an evening, and you wait till it gets dark, and you've got night vision scope, and oh. it, it's really cool. Oh wow! Uh, so we get to, we get to track antler score across every buck throughout their whole life, right? And mm-hmm. and and that's what led me to make my claim that I made earlier about you know five six and a half probably being the peak. Uh, but there was one deer in particular that put on. 20 or 30 inches going mm-hmm. from seven and a half to eight and a half. Wow. But that's just very, like a, that's a genetic fluke almost. Very exceptional case. Sure. He's probably the, I I think that he was the biggest buck that's ever been in that facility throughout over a decade. Wow. Uh, and who knows what led him to really throw on more mass that year, but he blew the charts and, mm. and his sense been, sort of seceding a little bit as they do at that age. Uh, sure. But that's rare. I mean, most deer are not getting bigger when they're eight and a half years old, you know? Mm. Um, so you have different so- ways of losing antler size. There is sort of a similar pattern of usually they keep their mass and oftentimes they keep their points, but they just lose length in, in a lot of cases. And sometimes yeah. they, go from a 10 pointer to a six pointer, but are just really heavy, you know, that's, uh, that's my buck. I'm looking for. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> but, but they really don't get as small. Like they don't lose as much mass as people think. Uh, you're not going to, let's say we're talking about that bell curve. The right mm-hmm. side of that bell curve does not get anywhere near as low as the left. If that makes sense. Like they're going to maintain if a right. buck, if a buck is ever a booner, it's going to die very close to a booner unless, you know, maybe an injury or something happens that would limit okay. antler growth that year, but they're not really going to lose uh, a ton of antler development in their late ages. Typically. Yeah. yeah that's really um, interesting to hear that because you hear, you hear guys talk about, Oh, he's going downhill or, or, you know, whatever, but downhill I mean, is not as far downhill as you'd think. No, not as, not, not as much as you'd think. I think that, you know, as hunters, we like to give ourselves reasons to pull the trigger, and there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> that's so true. I think that's why. Well, I just got to you know? take him now. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, hey, he's not going to get bigger. Um, hey, in a lot of cases, that's true. They do get smaller, but 
in, in my personal opinion, I think those old gnarly bucks that might not score as well on the tape oh, are yeah. really cool oh, and unique yeah. animals. Yep. Um, yep. I would love to just take a, you know, nine, 10 year old deer. That's just oh, the funky, bucks. Know, maybe only 120 inches or something like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, no. So your question. Yeah. I think that if you're trying to, if you are trying to capitalize on a mature deer that you feel pretty confidently is not at risk of being harvested by anyone else, then sure, you know, wait until they're five and a half, six and a half. If you're just trying to harvest a mature buck, you might run into diminishing returns by passing four and a half year old deer. Of course, it all comes down to the hunter and their preferences, but I would be willing to bet that they're probably going to be within about 10% of what they'll ever actualize as a four and a half year old buck. I, so, and then what Kent was, what we're getting at here is a theory that I heard on a YouTube channel. Um, well, and anybody can watch it. It's Lee Lakowski and Tiffany's like their, their crush, whatever YouTube. Mm-hmm. So he's doing it. He was doing a series where he does some, like they're creating some different habitat, but he does some shed hunting and he was explaining like why they, you know what their age why they age class their deer to like six and a half plus and he was saying that like he was there was some i guess when in a few instances on their farm with deer four and a half let's you know they had maybe a mainframe 10 they had a couple extra points start starting and then his theory was that like that deer, you know that deer is pretty dominant they're younger they're feeling good they're running really hard well then he noticed that same deer the next year would not have those extra points like in like, like in the fit five and a half year old age range. And then at six, he said a lot of that times like mass and like those extra points would return. And I don't know if it's a one deer or two, I'm sure there's also deer. I mean, some of that's deer personality, right? Like some deer are not going to rut as hard, but in general, there's this idea of like at five and a half compared to four, uh, you know, in general, if you took like a large sample size, yep that a four and a half is going to be bigger than a five and a half most of the time because they rut harder at four than five. So they're more diminished, I guess. So there's probably truth to that, but I think Mm -hmm. that, that there's maybe being, there's kind of a roundabout way of getting to what's actually happening, which is all comes down to chemicals in their brain, right? Testosterone hormones Mm -hmm. and higher testosterone tends to result in larger antlers. It's a sexual characteristic. Mm-hmm. Um, there is annual variation in antler growth. Like if, if deer don't have the same nutrient availability that in the past year, yeah, they probably like we talked about earlier. Yeah. Sure. Right. Sure. Right. Um, but I mean, they're probably really close to the money there with when deer tend to peak in antler development. I haven't noticed as much in terms of sort of the non-typical you know, junk. Yeah. Going away. Um, mm-hmm. but they're, yeah, they're, they're unique you know, too. I mean, they like know every deer they've got, who yeah, knows how many know, cameras, that, you know, yeah, like they, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that Caleb because they do, you know, they kind of have like a facility almost like, I mean, not that they're shooting them in a pen or anything yeah. like that, but, but they, they got a million trail cameras out. They know who every yep. deer is and yep. they're targeting new, newcomer. They know deer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. So Absolutely. it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing to talk about, but, 
but uh yeah i like how there's still some mystery there too you know it's like and every deer every deer will have their own arc and mm-hmm. you can't predict it uh yeah you can you can observe patterns and make decisions based off those patterns but uh you know at the end of the day if to me if if you're going to get excited to squeeze the trigger then do it i mean that's my <laughs> philosophy <laughs> right so, yeah i agree Ted and I always talk about, like you were saying, the excuse to pull the trigger. It's like, well, they could yeah. get hit by a car anyway, you know? Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you never know. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, call, call bucks are probably yeah. the biggest examples, you know, whatever yeah. that is. Yeah. Um, I just got to get him out of there. We got to, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that extra terrible. Yeah. Uh, right. You just admit, man, that you like that buck. You think he's cool yeah. and you really would like to have his yeah. rack on your wall. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. Yep. 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 Even if he's less than 14 inches on his main beams. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, good. No, so here's another one that Caleb talked about. Caleb's got a friend. Yeah. Um, uh, go ahead and give him a little shout out here. Caleb. Yeah, Ron Ron Nixon is his name. He owns a, a business in Ottumwa, Iowa called Antler Guys Mercantile Company. And uh, he's, he's an antler guy, if you've ever, ever heard of one. Okay. Um, good friend so, with uh, our buddy Craig Bell from uh, yeah. ShedHunters.com. Yeah. So he, I mean, that guy, that guy lives for antlers. He has like four of the top 10 drop tine bucks in like the shed hunters book. Like, well, I don't, he's, some of them he's found, some of them he's bought, but he was telling me, and I've got a shed to show you. So like this is for an, for instance, mm-hmm. he, I was in a shop one time and he, we were looking at, he's got hundreds of bucks in there. Um, he's got some cool, you know, you can buy mounts and all that stuff in there. You can get your mount fixed up if you want to even, but we we're looking at a buck and like on this rack, this is, you know, he was the G two. He mm-hmm. was saying like, this one's short, like on the one I'm showing you here. And yeah. he was, you're we looking at one. He was saying that this is a mid, this isn't from Illinois, but it's in the Midwest close enough within three hours of here. Mm-hmm. Like the latitude, he was, right. Was kind of what he yeah. was getting at. Yeah. So he's saying like, you know, then the G three is longer. Yep. He's saying only in this part of the country. Do you, do you find that that G two is shorter than the G three for whatever reason? Kent, you brought up a great point on a podcast, I think, um, not too long ago. You had a theory about uh It was about fighting. Yeah. Like like oh survival, yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean just uh you know, I said I was just basically spitballing, but you know, like maybe it, maybe it was a uh you know, a natural selection type scenario where maybe it's that G two that it so often gets bucks entangled or something and so you know, history of buck fighting has favored bucks with that uh, shorter G two to result in less intent, you know, less lockups and and death by lockup. You know, yeah, um, that's very interesting. I I could see there being some truth in that. Uh, we know that the most likely main time to be broken is the G two. Really, really, is that like a pressure thing? Like, is it the I, highest pressure point or? I think, yeah, I think that it's the way that they fight. And that's so, interesting. I mean, I have never given this any thought, but I do wonder if having a shorter G2 would have there be less leverage for that time to break. Obviously, it's in a deer's best interest mm. to have their rack intact. Yeah. So, yeah. and we do know that antlers play a massive role in breeding selection. Yeah. Um, there is a yeah. study in the South that showed. If you, from MSU, right? Yes. The, the it, doe selection exactly, study? Exactly. 
basically yeah. if you put a big fake rack on a very young buck that buck will have better breeding success than uh the, yeah the does a big, gnarly mature buck with the antlers cut off wow yeah. did, yeah, did that, you that ever was a find wild study in uh like in mississippi or you know did you ever like were the bucks there just because i've never been seen mm-hmm. i've been bucks did they like were their G2s like longer than their G3s? All of I'd them? Or did you see of, the... I mean, nationwide, species wide, yeah. I'd say as a rule of thumb, the tines get shorter as they move from the G2, typically. Mm. That's yeah. sort of the growth pattern. Um, I will say this isn't the first time I've heard that G2 theory. Okay. And I have a, a good buddy of mine who lives uh, in Washington County area. Uh, who claims that the exact same thing is true on his farm. And I mean, he has the pictures to back it up. Mm. Uh, it's like almost all of his mature bucks have short G2s and long G3s. And it, it yeah. is strange. I think there there has to be some genetic component to that in this sure. region. I, I, think, I think that there's usually fire where there's smoke. Yeah, sure. When it comes to that That's stuff. interesting. Well, I, I mean, I have probably... I don't know, maybe 50 sheds laying around my house. And I'd say, I'd say at least 85, probably more likely 90% of them have a follow that pattern that Caleb talked about there with the short G2, the shorter G2. I mean, it's, and they're from both Illinois and Iowa, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, same latitude. So, it's, so let's think about what we'd find in that latitude and region is probably higher deer densities yeah. than other mm-hmm. parts of the country, which means more competition and more interaction and a higher likelihood of mm, yeah. conflict and sparring yeah. and fighting. And so if there was ever well, a and bigger racks too, you know, just like right. bigger, you're, you're you got deer you know, size too. There's the a body lot of mass. big bucks. <laughs> so I think if there was ever a region of the country for that to be so selectively bred into the, you know, physiology of antlers it's probably where we're at right now so that's so cool that's man I'm, I'm so glad we talked about this, this that is, is cool this is awesome someone needs man. to do like an actual study or yeah. something like, yeah. like like just not to add more measurements to the deer <laughs> we gotta have a g2 measurement across yeah. like the midwest yeah. and then see just like plot it where they're all yep. coming from yep caleb just got got all of us iowa hunters to have to do one more assignment yeah. here yeah. <laughs> measure your g2 and your g3 and if it's shorter yeah we That's need to you know, drop yeah. a pin where you yeah. shot it well if you if you if you know anybody who's who needs a good study done they're in uh iowa state right now where the other the main beam study came from maybe you could throw out the g2 g3 difference and maybe they can find a certain ratio you know if it right, if the right. difference is within a certain number of inches then it means this or whatever i don't know but, it is interesting yeah yep for yeah. sure well i love i love talking about this love having this conversation um you know i was going to talk a little bit about scent control but mm. we're hitting that hour mark here it's late all of us have to get up and go to work plus i want to have jace back on the podcast in the future so we can definitely get to scent control then but i do want to talk cwd with you a little yep. bit mm-hmm. um it seems like uh we're getting more and more of it every year which that's true isn't surprising no um it's a little bit alarming though at how quickly it's happening mm. and uh, how many counties are we at right now jace that 
that are that have had a CWD positive test. We are at 16 in the state. With that being the case, we've we I mean it made sense where it kind of started out, you know, is right is is basically right where the quote unquote cesspool of CWD in our country is at, which is, you know, south south uh west wisconsin you know we have the driftless iowa area up there and i think if i remember correctly that's where cwd first started to pop up was you know alamakee county yep which is right there on the mississippi river across from wisconsin and then i think we started to have it pop up on the missouri border because there was kind of a little spot down there in some of those northern counties in missouri who had Mm -hmm. it before us i believe that's right. So now we're fighting it on two fronts. Mm. Um, and then Pottawatomie County, all the way over on the western edge of our state, um, they were another one of the earlier counties to have a positive case, I think. I think you're thinking of Woodbury County. Uh, Woodbury. Where's Woodbury at? What, what cities that, are there? That is up by... Bluffs. Okay, so did Pot- does Pottawatomie not have any? I, I always there haven't been any map. wild wild deer detections. There, there perhaps was a captive cervid. Okay, I always thought they were, but maybe maybe it was Woodbury, and I just thought it was Pottawatomie. Mm-hmm. Do they board? Does that border Pottawatomie? I know Council well, Bluffs. Woodbury's a bit north of Pot County, but there's um, you know same region. Okay. So I must have must have had that mixed up then. But anyways, we've had it we've had it in all these different spots, and now it's like growing. Um, it's actually in the county just north of Caleb and I, where we uh, mm. hunt in Jasper County, yep. Iowa. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think where else, uh, maybe in another southwest Iowa county, kind of down on the Missouri border. There might be one down there. I can't remember. Um, but point being, it's been like slowly just popping up kind of almost mm-hmm. randomly throughout the state. Like it makes sense. You know, those first areas down on where neighboring states already had it. We got mm-hmm. it. But I mean, I don't think we need to do like a total, you know, CWD is a, is a prion disease. It's not like a virus. It's not a, it's not a prion is not a living thing. It's a, it's a protein, a protein, go back to your high school biology days. Proteins are one of the macromolecules that make up living things. We, they, they do all sorts of things. They're basically little chains of chemical factors that, that help form the structure of the bigger molecule, which eventually makes a, you know, cells and tissues and, and organs and organ systems and an organism, right? So these prions, they get into the brain because they're these little misshapen proteins they influence the surrounding brain proteins and cause them to change their shape because you have all these different chemical attractives attractiveness that happens and um you know it it causes those those other proteins to become misshapen well when that happens imagine if all of a sudden uh you had a brick house and um, you had like some fungus or something that wore that that took away the the 
structural uh, integrity of all the mortar in in the the brick house, and it just started to creep across the brick house. Eventually, you got bricks that aren't held together anymore, right? And the the integrity of that house is now compromised. Well, the same thing happens once in the brain. The those prions, those misshapen proteins, cause a physical breakdown in the brain tissue, get holes in your brain for lack of a better term. And, uh, for it affects all kinds of different organisms, uh, mammals, like probably if you're listening to this, you might remember back in the days that of chron- or of mad cow disease in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, there's always the, uh, you know, the Hollywood loves to work this in to give the little shock factor every now, Kruxfeld Jakob's disorder, where the human version of this, uh, I think sheep were the first animals where this was observed and known as scrapies. Yep. Um, and then there's CWD, chronic wasting disease that affects cervids, so everything in the deer family. And it's always fatal, right, Jace? Like there's no, That's right. there's no cure. There's no cure, which is a shame because it is always fatal. And when we say that, uh, it's sometimes taken the wrong way. And often that statement gets weaponized against. I've never CWD. seen a I've never seen a dead deer with CWD. Exactly. <laughs> or sometimes you hear, "Well, I shot a CWD positive deer, so my bullet killed it, not CWD." Yeah. It's like yes, all of all of that is true. Um, but if CWD is left to its own devices in the absence of any other mortality factor, like a vehicle collision or a hunter's bullet, then that, that disease will lead to the deer's death uh, rather quickly once the symptoms begin to display themselves um, 100% of the time. So there's mm-hmm. no surviving the disease. There's no curing the disease. Uh, so that does make it tricky to manage. Mm-hmm. Uh, the worst part, I think, the worst feature of this disease, and it's kind of a double-edged sword, is the incubation period between mm-hmm. when a deer becomes infected with CWD and when it begins to show physical signs of the disease. Yeah. That and, incubation and also period. When it, and also when it's able to shed the, the disease, right? Well, but, it's it's shedding those prions most of the incubation period. Right. There's probably about a six-month lag between when the deer becomes infected and when it's shedding prions in the urine and it can, uh, and it can live with, with CWD for multiple years, right? During that incubation yes, period, that incubation wow. period can be up to three years uh, yeah. or as short as a year. It's a lot and of half. shedding. That's, yes, wow. exactly. Exactly. So yeah. it's, it's impossible to, rid the landscape of these prions that are being continuously deposited by seemingly healthy deer for Mm -hmm. years. Um, Unfortunately, these prions, unlike bacteria or many viruses, can persist on the landscape indefinitely, uh, I'll I'll say, because the, the new cutting edge studies are constantly pushing that line of they'll survive five years, now 10 years. It's like, they're oh, surviving wow. as long as these studies have been going on oh, mm. no. and they haven't really shown a ceiling yet. So mm. there's not wow. exactly a 30 year time that that prion. Oh, no. Yeah. So to make things worse and 
I'm glad that we waited to the end of the, the conversation to <laughs> yeah. all depress each all other. All right. But, good night, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you basically can't get rid of them through even extreme actions like prescribed fire. I mean, the, the, really? the prions will persist through any sort of burn. I believe it takes about a thousand degrees Fahrenheit for these prions to be denatured, which will Whoa. never happen other than yeah. in an, I mean, there's, if it, if it does, we got other problems. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The asteroid has hit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There are like commercial incinerators that don't get that hot. So. Wow. Oh yeah. Man. The, uh, I've got a consumer kind of question here with yep. this because I saw this in a last year where it was, I think it was a state that they required that they test the brain for CWD. And so that's you know someone had harvested a deer they were required to test it it's just something they're doing within this that state mm -hmm. the the test came back positive that these these particular individuals chose not to to consume the meat of that deer mm. would there be any logic to that for any reason yeah there is i mean every regulatory body that i'm aware of from the cdc to state agencies all recommend against consuming known positive meat which sucks the first year i ever shot with my bow in wisconsin probably 30 miles from where the first first white-tailed deer was ever detected with the disease mm -hmm. uh oh, just so happened man. to be a positive buck well at that time every adult buck that you shot in that county you're flipping a coin on whether it's positive or not so wow it's not like i was bucking the odds by any means uh mm -hmm. Anyway, found out it was positive and already had the whole deer cut up and I, I didn't eat any of it because of those concerns. But at that point we did discard all the meat, mm -hmm. which you can imagine was, uh, it sucked. I mean, that oh, was, yeah. uh, it was a blow to the gut, you know, to yeah, throw right. 40, yeah. 45 pounds of meat in the dumpster. So, yeah. but I, at the time didn't feel that it was worth taking a risk for my own health or, you know, family and friends that would be consuming the meat too. Yeah. Ultimately, it comes down to individuals making that decision. There mm -hmm. haven't been any cases of humans contracting the disease. Uh, but there's also a pretty high likelihood that if that did happen, it would go undetected because there's a lot of similar diseases that may be attributed to somebody's cognitive decline, let's say. Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, mm -hmm. One one that gets thrown around a lot is Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. and there's mm. studies. Uh, well, is there a higher incidence of Alzheimer's among deer hunters in CWD endemic areas? Mm. You know, stuff like uh, that that people crazy. are looking yeah. into. Yeah. So there's nothing definitive, and we know that diseases like CWD have made the species jump, which is very scary. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, mad cow disease. Exactly, yeah. mad cow. Yep it it basically mutated into Kreutzfeldt Jakobs, which infects humans. So it's not impossible for that to happen with CWD. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there was that, there's that, <laughs> the test group, right? Where they had that big uh, game banquet and uh, there's like a hundred people or whatever that attended mm -hmm. this banquet and somebody served up some uh, CWD infected, uh, yep. either deer or elk or something. And, uh, all these people ate it not, and they, the person didn't do, it wasn't like some, you know, 
sick plan, you know, that they, they did this, they, right. they found out afterwards yep. that I think they got their test results back afterwards or something. And, oh no, we served all these people infected meat. Yeah. And I think it's been like 20 years or something like that, hasn't it? And, um, so far nobody in the test group has, uh, tested positive for Crucified right. Jakob, but, and you know, there's actually a, a much bigger list than that. Uh, in Wisconsin, the, the DNR there asks whether you plan to consume a deer after it's positive. Mm-hmm. So there's no rules about that you have to throw it away or that you can't eat it. So, mm-hmm. you know, the state takes advantage of that situation, um, you know, to their credit. <laughs> here's, our, saying, here's our guinea pigs. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys plan to eat this? If so, we're going to put you on a list and keep an eye on your, <laughs> you yeah. know, um, which Those is people are heroes. They're, they're <laughs> absolutely heroes. That's right. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're going into uncharted waters for, for the greater good, but yeah, um, yeah definitely. You know, here's a, <laughs> here's a question I have for you on the, you know, the, the persistence of it in the environment. And we talked about this, so you know what I'm going to ask you. I've asked you this multiple times, but just for the sake of our listeners, I've had a lot of trouble getting a straight answer on, not from Jace. Jace has answered it. He's, he's the one person I think that I've, that I've, you know, really talked to who's really had a a straight up answer because there isn't an answer, but he's willing to to spitball with me a little bit here. And, you know, especially when I look at those CWD maps is where, is where it it seems like there could be something here. To me, it is when you have something that can stay in the environment, stay viable in the environment for so long. And really that's, I would guess probably the majority of the ways that other deer become infected with it, you know, maybe they infect it, uh, as a, you know, as a, as a, well, if you're of the new age, it's STI now back when we were in health class in junior high, it was STDs, but, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's sexually transmitted from one deer to another. I don't know, but it's, it's it, a lot of times it's picked up by, you know, deer are eating acorns, right? Where another deer took a leak that was infected and they're picking up those prions. So they're scraping them up off of the environment and they're, they're becoming infected. Now we as deer hunters, where are we spending our time when we go hunting? We're going where, where's the greatest density of deer? That's where I want to be because that gives me the best opportunity. And so if I go from here in Iowa and I go up to, well, I could literally do this. I have family that live in CWD positive counties in Wisconsin and uh, they've invited me to come deer hunting, and um, I would—I really want to. But one of the things I'm very much afraid of is that I go there, and now I'm tromping around in my hunting boots and my hunting gear, and with my, you know, bow or gun or whatever, and I'm going into these these densely populated areas of deer that most likely there's prions everywhere, all over the place on the ground. I go and I hunt for three days, throw all my stuff in the back of my truck, and then come back to Iowa and resume, you know, hunting to finish out my Iowa tags. And I'm jumping out of my truck into my Iowa properties where I hunt, and I walk around in the same pair of boots, and I walk around with the same 
hunting duds and and gun and or bow or whatever, and they could be coated in those prions mm-hmm. theoretically. And now I'm shedding prions back here in Iowa. And when I see these random counties that aren't surrounded by, like for instance, Jasper County, that's not, mm-hmm. you know, that's in central Iowa. That's far from Northeast Iowa. It's hours from Northeast Iowa. And it's hours from the counties down at, by, on the Missouri border. How on earth do we get CWD in Jasper County? Is it because, well, you know, obviously somebody could shoot an infected elk out in Colorado and they, Maybe even they follow the rules and they get the brain out of it and they debone it. They debone all the meat and but but they still have prions on the animal and and uh, they end up here. Okay, I understand. But couldn't it be that in the era of and I I do this too. Caleb and I were heading out to Nebraska mm-hmm. to go mule deer hunting in December when we're all going all over the place hunting. Could we be dropping CWD off everywhere? I mean, it is so, like, do you think it's possible at all? Or do you yes. think it's, it, do you I, think it's just very low? Or is it like, yeah, no, that's probably a very high possibility that people are doing that. I, I think that there's an almost definite possibility that it's occurring. Um, because like you said, I mean, prions can be taken up and, uh, different materials and deposited elsewhere. Uh, it's not something that I'm going to even spend a second thinking about in when I'm thinking about CWD management in Iowa, because mm-hmm. so it, it all comes down to prion load and mm-hmm. how many prions does it take for a deer to become infected? We don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know. We know that they can become infected through environmental contamination without the direct contact of a deer. Hmm. So in theory, it, it may be possible that with enough trips or enough prions on your boots, you could spread that disease uh, potentially to, to a you know, naive herd. Mm-hmm. What I think is much more worth our time pondering and making decisions to avoid is carcass transport. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, how did CWD pop up in these new counties? So we know that deer disperse long distances, particularly young males. Uh, Does disperse long distances too. That's some new science that's coming out. Mm. Uh, so both sexes disperse males to a much higher degree and a much further distance typically. But so that's that's possible. Uh, but I find it much more likely that somebody was hunting down in Wayne County or up in Alamakee County. They shot a deer, brought it down to Jasper, mm. Grundy, or Marshall, any of those three counties that are pretty far from our endemic zones that just popped uh, for CWD this last year uh, and probably discarded a carcass out on a back 40 and, you know, mm. didn't take mm-hmm. long for that disease to be introduced. Uh, that could have happened 10 years ago. Yeah. It could have been. Uh, That's a good point. You know, so, wow. so anyway, I never I, thought of it that way. Yeah. It could just, because <clears throat> we don't have, wow. it's not just somebody doing the illegal thing of, uh, yeah, I shot this thing in Colorado, but I'm not, you know, I'm not going to monkey. No. I won't get stopped. This could be because you don't have to debone it to bring it home. If you nope. shot it elsewhere in Iowa, that's a great point. That's true. Wow. 
And what do you think of when you think of Wayne County and Alamickey County? I mean, those are like destination deer hunting counties in Iowa. Great deer hunting counties. And it's no mistake that CWD appeared there because, you know, high densities leads to high disease prevalence and spread. Mm -hmm. And the reason they're destination counties is because of that density and also because of the quality. But that's beside the point in this case. Anyway, there's a lot of people from all over the state and country traveling to those two counties, which were, you know, sort of the endemic zones for a while now. Uh, We're starting to see a spread into central Iowa, which is concerning. Mm. But if I was a betting man, that's that's what I'd put my chips on, that that there was a carcass transported, probably probably by someone who didn't even know to think about it or or consider it. We don't have carcass transport laws within the state of Iowa. So they weren't breaking any rules. And, you know, uh, in fact, there was an individual in, in Greene County when that was the first central Iowa county to, um, okay. to pop. And that was not this last sampling season, but prior to that, right when I came on on it with the DNR. And it, it threw everyone for a loop. Like, wow, this is just a random county. You know, it's not usually they were a border hmm. county with another state. And there was an individual that uh, we spoke to who said, you know, I, I deer hunt, I've been deer hunting in Wayne County for my whole life. And I always bring the carcasses up here, chuck them out on the back 40 when I'm done. And like, until now, I didn't even think about the Mm. implications for that. So he's like, I could have been, you know, ground zero and he could have, but I'm willing to bet there's probably plenty of other guys who've, who've done the same thing. So it's, it's a really tough thing to manage and none of none of the disease mitigation act uh actions are popular because they result in people you know having to make extra effort or lose convenience mm-hmm. but right. if, if you know the quality of whitetail deer hunting in iowa not you know tonight is something that we want to hold on to i mean yeah me what the biggest threat to that is it's not habitat it's definitely chronic wasting disease Hmm. wow that's a powerful statement but one that we need to take seriously you know it's it is a good it is good to know that the gear transmission is maybe not as as uh likely as what it seems it could be it's just like you gotta get a generator for those well well, isn't there something too with wasn't there part of that study on how to how to denature these prions didn't bleach show some uh effectiveness with that 40 40 bleach for five minutes is kind of the rule of thumb for okay. disinfecting knives that's so, that's so kind of like some like clorox with bleach wipes and swab everything down and it's probably right. not going to be on there for five minutes but Maybe that would be. So that's my question to you. I mean, what are you willing to do to mitigate that risk? Personally, yeah. I'm personally I'm going to make decisions to avoid unnaturally congregating deer, like through baiting or feeding. I'm yep. going to make decisions to not transport carcasses from known endemic regions, uh, things like that. Right. But yeah. man, we all got to live our lives, and yeah. there's a little bit of risk associated with that, and you know but th- there are a few things that we are really trying to you know information we're trying to spread choices we're trying to 
avoid and mm-hmm. the gear thing like what's awesome is that you're thinking about it and that that you're that you care about the issue uh enough to consider that which admittedly is something i've never that's never even crossed my mind and i'm you know for better or worse thinking about cwd every day in my life so yeah. <laughs> it's it's I, I definitely applaud you for for taking that you know those steps those mental steps um but man i wouldn't worry about that uh i think that there's bigger battles to fight for a second i was like we had to it's gonna like burn your clothes at the end of a yeah, yeah. Right, right. Well, you know you know one thing i have thought of like in my you know if a guy is in a case like i I have where you have family that live up there. You'd almost like take some of your older hunting gear and just get like a leave big it there. tote and just <laughs> leave it there for every year, you know, and be like, Hey man, do you mind if I just keep this tub of stuff up here? And then every deer season, you know, I just use it. Or if you're going to be traveling all over the place um, and you're going into, you know, just have like a set of <laughs> call it your CWD gear. You <laughs> your know, pre-on just, closet. Yeah. You're, yeah, you're right. <laughs> These are my pre-on pants. Yeah. <laughs> new new line from first light first light prion series yeah uh but but uh no it's um uh we laugh but it is a serious issue yes. and um uh one that you know as jay said if there's a biggest threat to uh what we have here in iowa that that would be it so let's let's finish there let's uh, work in here because we want to talk about the bow hunter survey mm-hmm. um the one that i i did and turned in late last year because i forget I didn't read the instructions the right way. I hope you still got to use my data though. Um, oh, we'll use it. Good, good. Um, and I hope you guys send me another one this year. I felt honored to get that thing, even though it was randomly selected, but it, <laughs> it, uh, it felt good to be able to participate. But, um, we also have the, this other survey, I believe that's separate from the bow hunter survey, right? Yes. It's just like a deer hunting survey. That's right. And, yep. And, um, how, how do we keep Iowa the whitetail state? Yeah, so that survey you're mentioning, the, the 2023 Iowa Deer Hunter Survey, is really the first of its kind. And, you know, if, if all your audience is Iowa deer hunters, then only probably about 10% of them know what I'm talking about because we only mm-hmm. sent this survey to, and I say only, but we sent 16,000 uh, mailings to wow. licensed buying deer hunters in Iowa. And that's, you know, 10% of the deer hunters here. So we asked basic questions uh, that you would expect on any sort of survey, like demographics, harvest behavior, um, hunter season preference, hunter effort, kind of admittedly boring topics uh, and and pretty ubiquitous through these different state surveys. But uh, I think that we broke a lot of ground on some new questions that in my understanding and i've looked at a lot of different state surveys uh these are the first time that a lot of questions are getting asked about emerging technologies that are being used for hunting mm-hmm. about Iowa specific oh. regulatory preferences in terms of different weapons being allowed during different seasons that currently aren't hmm. uh, and also fair chase was a big topic in there how do hunters in iowa define fair chase and if they can define it do they do they believe that the iowa dnr is beholden to you know honoring that concept through our regulations or should that not be considered when we're setting regulations and managing populations um you know and then how do these different emerging technologies fit into the fair chase question 
So when I when I say emerging technologies, we're talking about cellular transmitting trail cameras, cell mm -hmm. cams. Uh, mm -hmm. We're talking about uh, maybe range finding bow sites or mm, sure. You know, there's there's a lot of new gadgets and and whatnot being used. Now the the motivation behind this survey was not to add more regulations per se or anything like that. It's not that we want to add more weapons to certain seasons. So we're seeing what people think. Uh, rather, we're we're taking these steps to send this survey and collect this data as a means to have our house in order uh, when these topics get brought up in the legislature, uh, mm. which which they do on an annual basis. Uh, if you track mm. if you track those bills. Uh, there's there's a lot of bills uh, involving crossbows, mm -hmm. involving different rifle calibers, which you know have have changed throughout the last decade in Iowa considerably. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're not taking a stance on those issues by any means. We're just trying to collect data and know how our hunter base feels about them. So when the time comes, we can report that uh, in the right conversation, if that makes sense. So. Yeah. I, I think that, yeah, this is a good opportunity to explain that we're not really in the business of promoting or pushing those different uh, those different regulatory preferences or methods of take unless we feel that our hunter base supports it, right? Like we're public servants and that's sort of our government model is to, you know, make make the decisions based on populist vote. So... Hmm. Uh, in, in a large way, that's what this survey does. And I'm really excited to start digging into the results. We're in the data entry phase, which is going to be a slog. I mean, we sent mm -hmm. 16,000 surveys out. We've gotten about 2,000 to respond online and have at least 2,000 paper copies uh, that need to be entered with 42 questions each. So it's oh, not going to be <laughs> it's not going to be done overnight. We've got uh, some people working on it, but uh, one that is summarized there there'll be a public report available um i'd be happy to get it to you guys and, and you can and hey maybe we can we can discuss the findings on another episode That's yeah that, that'd be fantastic uh so yeah if you if you're listening in you end up getting a copy of that make sure uh, you, you do your part and fill that sucker out and uh let everybody know um what you know what what you think that's how we make informed decisions as a state and uh keep what's great great is uh by making sure we get opinions from everyone i do want to throw in there um iowa bow hunters association is a group that's been around for quite a while um i think at least 30 years if i remember correctly uh here in iowa and um uh they follow uh legislation that affects deer hunting in iowa very closely and they keep their members in the loop and um if they feel that something is being proposed and by the way it's not jace who makes all these uh law changes everyone thinks the dnr makes these law changes they pass on a recommendation based on like what jace was just talking about what what are the stakeholders um you know suggesting and uh you know if something if if you know they're called upon by legislators to to weigh in on something that's that's what they do but it is the legislators that make the law and it is the legislators that by the way get affected by lobbyists 
and uh, which can be people that don't even live in Iowa, that don't hunt in Iowa, that have nothing to do with deer quality in Iowa, and they can be putting a lot of pressure to change our uh, way that we legally manage our deer herd in Iowa. And so Iowa Bowhunters Association helps you stay in the loop and helps you get your voice heard and tells you how to get that done. So uh, I recommend uh, anyone listening to uh, check out Iowa Bowhunters Association and uh, consider joining. Um, I, I, I'm a member and uh, I have benefited from their work and so have you if you're an Iowa deer hunter. So I'll definitely check them out. Well, Jace, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, how can people follow you? I, I'm a fairly private person when it comes to social media uh, and, and don't do a whole lot of self-promotion from that aspect. Uh, professionally, you can uh, reach me at my work phone and work email, which are uh, online. You can just Google yeah, DNR if you really, wildlife if you, research. If, if you really want to yell at Jace, you got to go looking for it. We don't tell yeah. you how to get there. But, yeah. Thanks a but, lot, no. Jen. Um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> You guys are gonna be um, calling you about the fourteen inches on their mouth. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it's um, it's always good to hear from the public. I I really enjoy that aspect of my job, and uh, I'm you know I don't hesitate to say that that the vast majority of my interactions are uh, really positive ones that that make me excited to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah, that's great. That's great to hear. Yep. Only uh, contact Jace if uh, it's going to be good. No, I'm just kidding. Contact, <laughs> be involved. Talk to the people that that uh, uh, are are working on the, these things that you're so passionate about, that we're all so passionate about listening to this. So thank you, Jace, very much for joining us. Thank you, Caleb, as well, for jumping on last minute. I knew you'd want to be in on this one. Oh, this and, was great, uh, guys. It's um, good to yeah, meet you, Jace. It, it, was, Absolutely. Uh, it was a really good, uh, good time hanging out with you guys. Do remember, if you're tuning into this, this podcast is brought to you by Spartan Forge. They are the presenting sponsor. They have been for quite some time now. I use them all the time. I use them for work. I use them um, while I'm uh, hunting, of course. I use them while I'm scouting. I use it while I'm shed hunting. I even use it while I'm driving down the road, and I see something that's like, ooh, I'd hunt that. And I uh, drop a pin, you know what I mean? And... Uh, then I know who to have Caleb go knock on their door. And <laughs> Caleb's the world's best permission seeker. Send me um, there. <laughs> that's right. But uh, no, I use it all the time, uh, the mapping, but also, of course, I subscribe to the full version of the app. You can download the unfull version, that just get the mapping for free. But if you want to get the deer behavior prediction, which is spooky good, and Jace, you would love this because it's based on radio collar data thousands of years of radio collar data and they take that data and they apply it to your gps location where you're hunting <clears throat> analyze the trends in that data using artificial intelligence to quickly give you a uh, prediction for what deer movement's going to be like that day and um, that helps you know um, where to sit you know, if it's a core area day, then you're going to want to get in one of those interior close to bedding uh, stands. If it's a full range day, then you're probably going to want to hunt, um, you know, somewhere along bed to food. Or maybe uh, if it's during the rut between uh, uh, doe bedding areas or something like that or or transitional areas, you know, then you're going to want to hunt transitional area day. Or if it's a transitional area day, you want to hunt those transitional areas. So, um 
all of that comes from that app. You can uh, use the link that's in the show notes, or you can go to uh, my uh, link tree in my Instagram bio, and you'll find a link there to get on their website and get going with Spartan Forge. If you plan to hunt out west or up north or down south or out east, wherever it is, right here in the Midwest and big whitetail country, you're going to need some some idea of what it takes to get a tag, where you should be hunting, what are the public land opportunities, what's it, what are maybe some of the private land opportunities, do you need a guide, who do you get, where do you stay, all of that. You're going to need all that information to prepare a successful hunt, and there's no one better to do that for you than our really longtime sponsor, Alex Gruen at East West Hunts, the best hunt planner in the business. <clears throat> Alex just got back from hunting uh, out in Nevada, doing an early season archery mule deer hunt down there. Um, he's hunted all over the country. He's hunted up in Alaska and and. Uh, every other western state he's hunted out east he's hunted here in the midwest alex is a super experienced guy and he's been planning people's hunts for a very long time and he is a top to bottom service in doing so you can get your gear rented there like caleb and i do um, you can have him uh help you uh plan where you need to be buying preference points and uh how to apply for tags like Caleb and I do. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can uh, just get general advice from him. What workouts should I be doing? Um, is this gear going to be good enough? Is this a realistic plan? And he'll even send you waypoints on good glassing areas, areas where there's a high prevalence of game um, based on his conversations with guides out there that he, uh, talks to on your behalf so the best way to get on with alex is to go to eastwesthunts.com do a free consultation with alex see if this is something you want to do and um if it is use the promo code first gen 10 when you go to check out at the uh for purchasing that service or you can just tell them hey alex i heard you on the first gen hunter podcast and you'll get 10 percent knocked off your bill so definitely do that and then after you get out there use spartan forge to figure out where you're going to hunt you uh, used Alex to help plan that hunt. Uh, then once you have that successful tag filling, you need a good taxidermist. An old barn taxidermy located right here in Iowa, down in Fort Madison, Iowa, to be specific, is the place to go. Sam Gaylord has been in the business for decades. He's as good as it gets. He, he, you walk into a shop and you just see beautiful artwork which is we normally call taxidermy, but it's artwork all over the place. Over 500 deer shoulder mounts come through um, Sam's shop every year. He does elk, he does mule deer, he does mountain goats and, and sheep and you name it, turkeys, waterfowl, fish, everything that, that you can uh, shoot or catch, you can get taxidermied with Sam over at Old Barn Taxidermy, and uh, they do the be- the absolute best job. I say it all the time. You can't unsee bad taxidermy. If you settle for cheap taxidermy, you're gonna you're gonna be sick with yourself for every time you look at that disgusting looking thing up there on the wall. And it probably actually won't even be on the wall. It'll be in a cardboard box out in your garage on the top shelf of your uh, of your uh, garage shelving. Uh, because you don't want to look at those bug eyes and weird bulging nose and flappy ears. 
get your taxidermy done the right way. Go to Old Barn Taxidermy and tell them that the First Gen Hunter podcast sent you there, and um, that will help me out a lot. So, yeah, that'd be a nice little thank you to me for uh, putting the show out here. But a bigger thank you goes to you, the listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you haven't yet left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do so. Um, That really helps get the podcast out to more people. Well, thank you again, Jace and Caleb. This was an awesome episode. Really just a a really cool conversation. And um, looking forward to uh, having more of those down the road. Absolutely. Yeah, I had a great time. Thanks, guys. Yeah, it was awesome. Well, until next time, everyone, take care and take someone hunting.